Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris along with Scott Lease. We are back again with another episode of Surf and Sales. Super excited because we're going to shift it a little bit. Uh, we are going to talk about sales, but we're going to talk about marketing today because I think that's a really important piece as we start to see these two departments continually have to partner better together than apart. And uh, we're super excited that we have Sydney Sloan, the CMO of Sales Loft with us. Um, before we sort of officially introduce her, by all means, go sign up for Rev 2020 coming up in March in San Francisco. I'm going to be speaking there on a couple of topics, so I'm super excited and grateful for the opportunity. Sales Loft is also one of our, I think they are our longest consistent Surf and Sales sponsor from Surf and Sales 1. Uh, the fourth one's coming up, so we always appreciate um, uh, what Sales Loft does, and, and Sydney is certainly a big part of that. So Sydney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. I'm very excited to hang out on a Friday afternoon and, uh, and, and discuss all things marketing, my favorite topic. Absolutely. So let, let's, let's start with um, what was your origin story? Like where, like, did you, you know, not necessarily like where did you grow up I and mean, we can get into that, but like, were you always business minded? You know, were you that kid who always had a lemonade stand or, you know, that kind of stuff? Um, selling, I sold candy in college and school, you know, in grade sixth grade, like where, where would your business mindset come from? Um, it's interesting. I, I grew up in a farm, but not a typical, uh, my parents weren't originally farmers. My dad was an architect and decided to retire and raise his kids there. So my first sales job, um, cause I did like money was selling sweet corn on the side of the road, Highway 395 in very Northeastern Washington State, 13 years for a dollar. I made $385 that summer and bought all my clothes for school. And, and wow. I love that independence and um, the responsibility. And I love that you have those happened. numbers memorized still. $385, I totally remember. I, sweet corn and raspberries, to be honest. So. Right. Did you have to pick them yourself? Absolutely. Um, okay. I was 12. And my dad helped me make the sign. It was this green and yellow sign, sweet corn, 13 years for a dollar. And then I would get in our pickup truck at 12, pick the corn, drive to the bottom of the road, which is an, a mile and a half and away, put out my little sign, had my little change box, and uh, would sit out there all day until all the corn was sold. You got to drive the truck too? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool dad. <laughs> cool parents. That's awesome. That's awesome. When you're well, when you're young and on a farm, you you get to you get, you do to, get do to do a do lot of things. things. Yeah. I, I agree. I have some friends like that too. Um, so so fast forward from there. Um, how did you decide to sort of so you, you have the business bug, right? Um, how did you decide to sort of go into marketing as that decision for you? Like what what was that that, that drove you yeah. to that? So I, I'm one of those people, I've, I've been working since I was 12, um, honestly, have had at least one job since then, and all through high school. And I went to college, I went to USC, um, University of Southern California, and, um, and got, went for an international business degree, and that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, I was through the entrepreneur program and um, was the best thing, because it's not theory, you get to listen to people's stories and how they made money, how they branded their company, what it was like to get your first million dollar check. And so you really got to know the people and be inspired by their stories. And when I graduated, I had all these stories to learn from um, and the skill of writing a business plan. Um, and my first business plan was on an event planning company. 
And, uh, and that's what I was passionate about doing. And so I, I started working at Nestle doing events my junior year of college. Uh, and that transitioned in networking to um, an, an event planning company. And then I got into event marketing in a software company back in the mid nineties. So what, what kind of event tent. would Nestle do? What would Nestle do? Oh my gosh. Uh, we would go to food shows. Right. <laughs> Could you imagine being in sales for food? Uh, and so, yeah, I worked with the, 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 um, the test kitchen on testing out how to use the products. And then we go to trade shows and we demonstrate how to use Nestle products for large food service organizations and I get to travel with the corporate chef and everybody wanted to see Chef Roberto and um, it was fun. It was very, uh, not quite the trade shows we go to now. No. Yeah. <laughs> At the end when we're done, instead of locking down the booth, you're like trading food with everybody. And you know, right. I was in my early 20s. So, you know, we, we would take much, a lot of Stouffer's lasagna. <laughs> yeah. How much is transferable in, in the experience of running those events to the size of the events that you put on now? I think it goes at the end of the day, all back to the experience and you know, what I learned there with kind of very big budgets and putting on events and actually did the first of my, one of the things was the sales incentive. So I got to plan a sales incentive for the Nestle salespeople and sales teams and, you know, get to understand what motivated them. Um, so I think all those things at the end of the day that what I learned from events overall was, how to understand what people want, um, uh, deliver that to them in a way that is enjoyable, understand that there's a peak in the valley, and, and then really crafting things around this concept of think, feel, do. What do you want them to think? What's the key takeaway? How do you want them to feel about it? Excited, scared, fearful, you know, what, what is that feeling? But then what's the call to action at the end of the day? And to do that before the event, at the event, and after the event. Cool. I know you went there, you know, at some point we'll sort of fast forward because we'll get into some other things, but you know, then you went to work for Oracle, right? At some point. Adobe. Adobe, sorry, not yeah. Adobe, Oracle. Yeah, Adobe. haven't had to experience the Oracle. So, but you were at Adobe for 16 years, right? It's a I long was. time, right? We were, we were joking offline, it's longer than a lot of marriages. Um, certainly older than my kids. Um, yeah. What what, how do you want to stay somewhere for 16 years? Like that, like, that's so far outside my realm of reality, right? I think it's so far outside of, of the modern like workforce right now. I, yeah. I, I bet if we walked around sales lofts and, and asked everybody, hey, do you think you'll be here 16 years from now? Zero percent of people would reply. Kyle, 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 Kyle. Kyle. <laughs> that doesn't count. That doesn't count. Sydney. Sydney will be there, right? Um, 16 years of commuting to Atlanta. I don't know about that. Um, uh, so uh, I think there's a couple of things. One was uh, Adobe was a wonderful and is a wonderful company to work for. They treat their employees very well. It's a great brand. Um, customers really like Adobe. So it's a, it, when you say you work there and people's visceral reaction is positivity, yeah. um, that's pretty cool. It's also very successful. So you're making bonuses every quarter. Um, and, and then it was global. And I just, I, I think I, the way that I would describe it is I grew up at Adobe. I learned a lot through that company. And I think there is something to be said about starting your career in a big company because you do get the benefit of their training programs and learning and, and models. But why I stayed so long, if you look at it, I actually changed jobs every three years. I saw that. So yeah. I, I was able to move around. So I was in enterprise and 
I, and I started in field marketing and demand gen, and then I went into product marketing and industry marketing. I've marketed for developers. I would take on new products. So every three years, I would cycle into a new part of the company, and I get to start fresh trying to figure out what the right go-to-market motion was. And I learned how Adobe worked. So I, I got a lot of fun projects too. Um, and it, I think too, when, when you're in a company that's successful, you're given opportunity to grow. Um, it's challenging every day. And it was still really exciting for me. Um, you know, it, it flew by. I can't believe I was there that long. Um, and then when you get outside of it, you realize that there's a big, broad, you know, big world out there um, I'd moved to California. I was living in Canada for the majority of that time. And so more opportunity came. And then you, you realize that there's something else out there. And I think like a lesson, if someone is thinking about big company is you have to continue to build your network, not only inside the company you're in, but outside the network. Cause it took yeah. me a, a while to kind of regain a network of folks. How scary was it when you, when you actually did decide to leave and to go try something different? Yeah having known this one thing so well for so long. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't get to choose to leave. I was uh, let go. Um, and I think, you know, as uh, after 17 years of not going to my grandmother's um, uh, birthday um, or uh, going back to work early and not staying off as long as I could with my kids because I was so dedicated to my job. And then that day where it was a business decision, they got rid of our division. So I wasn't just the only one, but still, after so long of dedicating your life and making choices for the company versus personally, I, that taught me a lot of lessons. Yeah. Um, and uh, I never thought they, they did it every year. They, you know, set the strategy and do some restructuring. They did a massive restructuring in 2011, going from five business units to two, which is great for them. Um, but it hurt. Do you think, do you think, the, do you think the current workforce has uh, a less, I don't want to use the word naive, but like is, is more aware that that's a possibility Right. Um, to be let go, even if you're no, just, a just, performer. Just like, I, I think that um, that sting that you experienced after having been there for so long, um, I think that that's one of the things that drives the current workforce to move on every couple of years rather than stay for so long. Because I think that the, the viewpoint from a lot of workers is, well, there's no true loyalty because look after 17 years a whole division gets let go and off she goes right so yeah. why should i be so loyal to this one organization that if they have a shift in strategy they might let go of my whole team i i hope people don't do that um and uh because i think there's something to be learned about staying for a long time in a company too it you know when, when you jump around so much you actually don't get to the hard part right if you're there for a year, year and a half, you've just kind of gotten through the honeymoon phase. And then you, just like a marriage, right? After that, you got to keep working at it um, and continuing to figure out. And then you're responsible for the decisions that you made before and you have to figure out how to and, and be true to that change. And then you have to, to, to be able to, to move forward. So I think that, um, you know, businesses do change strategy. And with that comes an open opportunity. Hey, if that didn't happen, I still might be there. There are people that are still at Adobe 25, 30 years. Um, again, it's a great company. They pay really well. Um, and there are a lot of companies out there like that, that have workforces of hundreds of thousands of people, um, yeah. that are just, you know, grinding away every day. But 
if they love what, if you love what you're doing, you like who you're working for and you're getting paid for it. It's not a, it's not a bad gig at all. Um, so I didn't, I, I wouldn't ever want to think that people would work out of fear or not be loyal to the company out of a fear of a, a business change. I, I think it's also healthy to have gone through it because in scenarios where I've had to be at companies where we do have a change in the direction, I can have more empathy in the conversation that I have to have with people, which is never fun, yeah. but you can, it's more easy to put myself in their shoes because I've had to go through that. So my, my approach for going into those tough conversations um, comes from a place of understanding. Um, and, uh, and if I hadn't been let go, I surely wouldn't be here now. And I, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. And so that was, it was a gift at the end of the day to set me free from that and let me go off, you know, move here uh, to California, see new opportunity, and then, you know, take advantage of that and grow my career. Well, you, you said something you said, I, I want to sort of, from an advice point of view, you said, well, you know, after so many years, they, they let me go and lesson learned. It was almost like that day you learned the lesson, right? After 17, that's what, that's how I interpreted what you said for people who go through that. What, what, you know, what was the lesson, right? Like you said, you know, no more missing grandma's birthday. Um, you know, what are the changes you've made to stop and smell the roses if that's what it is or what other things have you learned from it? What, what I do and what I coach my team to do, take vacation. Mm-hmm. Take vacation and leave your computer behind. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, own, you get the whole point of vacation is to recharge, not to catch up on the work that you were behind on. And <laughs> I, I used to do that, right? Like, oh, good, I'm on vacation. I can really put my effort into this. Like, what? Uh, so, you know, really take the time to take a break, recharge, reset yourself, you know, delegate, the work will still be there, declare email bankruptcy, whatever it is, like, you know, uh, uh, do, do that is first and foremost. The second is being very um, uh, intentional about having presence with my family. Um, so not letting myself be constantly distracted by my phone and emails. Like when I'm with my kids, like the phone is, a, all our phones are away, <laughs> hopefully, you know, and, and yeah, okay. I have to work on the weekend sometimes and you know, that's clear and it, that's fine, but it was the constant distraction. Like mm-hmm. my Blackberry, that's how old it was, you know, never left my hand and I was constantly distracted and not fully paying attention. So I would say that's the other lesson that I learned is, you know, to set time aside to be with family and friends and um, be present with them. And that, the job is not the most important thing in the world. You mentioned, um, delegation and i think delegation is a huge huge part of of leadership especially the higher up you go did that come easy for you to just automatically delegate things was that something that you had to spend some time getting comfortable with and learning how to do i learned delegation in management when i was going from um and in, I was really struggling to kind of get through to that director level job. I'd been a group manager for a very, very long time. And, um, and so I, it was two things. One was um, that mental switch where you are, it's no longer about proving my value. It's actually about empowering a team and wanting to lift them up. And so I think that was, you know, i I drove so hard, wanted to be recognized so long for my accomplishments and, you know, very egocentric uh, and, and to realize and be coached, frankly, I had an awesome coach who helped me realize that my value would be in 
delegating, empowering, and lifting up the team. And that would give me the opportunity to uh, uh, ascend to be able to now spend my time with my peer group and working cross-functionally versus trying to do everything on my own and, you know, working hundred hour weeks to, because I was the person that got shit done. Guess what? I got all the shit to get the shit done. All the yeah. and I, I couldn't get out of my own, you know, project list to actually do other things. What kind of things did you start delegating? Do you remember? Um, uh, projects, um, you know, not having to be the lead on every project, actually giving big chunks of, of like cross-functional projects to people would be a, a, a good example. Um, uh, meeting management, right? Like our all hands gets planned by our ops person, not me. Uh, she checks in with me. And, and so, uh, you know, it gives her an opportunity to grow and work with the team and then it becomes more of a team agenda than my agenda. Um, uh, budget was a hard one because I liked that control, but entrusting someone that they could manage the budget and, and work with finance. Um, and, and that was a development opportunity for that person. Uh, so I, I think it depends. Like, uh, I would say the things that take a lot of time or the things you're not good at, um, are, are the ones that would be best to do. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and you know, if you hire great people, that's the mark of a great leader. And what happens if you ever, have you ever delegated something and it didn't go well? Oh, heck yeah, right? all the time. That happens, yeah. right? So yeah, because I, Scott and I have this conversation all the time. I struggle delegating, right? Like I really struggle. I'm getting better at it. I'm letting the boys take the garbage out now. Um, <laughs> but, um, any experience you can share with others to say, oh, you know what? Here's how you make sure you don't make a mistake delegating. And if you do, here's how you sort of clean it up a little bit. It's a topic I coach on frequently. And I, I, I think uh, Adobe had a good framework that they used in, in training folks. So the thing with delegation, that are, there's three points. That's it. It's pretty easy. Um, when you delegate, uh, make sure that you have the person you're delegating to say back to you what it is that you delegated. Do they have the same picture in their mind as you had in yours? You'll say, hey, Scott, um, I need you to go out and, uh, and take out the trash. And you're like, got it. I'm like, good, he's got it. Um, well, I meant the trash in the kitchen, the trash in the bathroom. Uh, oh, there's a pile of stuff in the backyard. Yeah. Like, dude, like, I thought I told you to take out the trash. You're like, I, I took out the kitchen trash. What are you talking about? Like, there wasn't clarity. I'm waiting for Riley to come in my door. I'm in his room. I'm broadcast. I'm like, Riley, you need to hear. Yeah. yeah. So, so have them say back to you, yeah. like, okay, so you want me to take out the kitchen trash? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I want you to take out all the trash. Right. Um, and so that, that clar clarifying step in the first delegation is the first thing. The second thing is check in early and often. Until you have that rapport with the person that you, you, you can trust them, delegate, check in. Hey, how's that going? Yeah. So I want to check in the next two days on kind of how you're progressing, how you're thinking about scoping the work, who you're bringing in. Okay, let's, let's just do like two quick check-ins. And if they're on the right path, then let them go. If not, you're course correcting like really quick so they don't go down the path so far that they're done. They get there and you go, oh, that's not what I wanted. And then they have to roll it back because that's the worst thing to do. Um, so clarification, check in early and often, and then empower. Like, and, and, and be okay if they don't do it the way you wanted them to do it. That is a huge lesson. It may not be exactly what you wanted, but you chose to delegate that. And if they achieved the goal, not the same way that you did, but still got it done, you got to be okay with it. Yeah. 
I, I agree hundred <clears throat> percent. I love that you, you, you use the, 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 the phrase, just like have them say it back to you. <clears throat> I, I kind of, I do that on the phone with the people that I sell to and I've trained my sales team to do that all the time, especially when somebody is like, okay, this sounds awesome. I just need to go talk to my CFO and, you know, go get like approval for, for buying sales law, for example. Right. I'm like, okay, great. Tell me what you're going to say. I make them kind of re-pitch everything to me and then I can kind of noodle with them be like okay well tweak this phrase you left this part out right so I love I love that idea of, you know make them say it back to you I, I think you could use that in life yeah and the, because you know that the as you're talking you're actually not listening to what I'm saying Whoop, see. <laughs> right so we, we we don't listen and so if you're active listening and can summarize back. You just told and used to coach your teams to summarize for the customer because when they would summarize back as they're doing in the internal selling, you could coach them to the point that would make sure that they would pitch it the same way that you would, right? But so many people don't active listening to the point that they can summarize. Yeah. And and so it 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 forces you to do active listening. It it's so good on clarification. And I would guarantee that. 90% of the time when they say it back to you, there'll be something that's different that they didn't hear. You didn't intend to say, but they heard it differently. Um, so that clarification, especially in tough conversations, so important. Yeah, so, 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 important. so important. And, and I, and my expectation is never that it comes back correct or, or right. Never. My, I lower the bar of what's acceptable and just mm -hmm. think, well, I, I didn't have to do it. That's less that I had to do. And so they got to this, this acceptable level. That's good enough on to the next thing. This is what I've been trying to talk to Richard about forever. He preaches and he's like, dude, just expect it to come back flawed. Because yeah. it will. But whatever they do, it saved me X amount of time. And I've gotten better at it because of Scott's coaching on this. So, so I, I really appreciate how you said it too. And I, I, I took some stuff out of that for me to use. Um, I, hope other, I hope other listeners do. Um, you start talking about sales a little bit, which I, which I want to segue into because you are a marketing leader. Um, marketing has to work with sales. They should work with sales. But you're also in a really unique um, situation because you guys are selling to salespeople, mm -hmm. right? So you get to bring in not just the partnership side of what it works to work with those people, but then you even have to think about how a sales leader thinks as it relates to what Sales Loft does, right? Um, first off, let me even ask, like, what's a good sales partner look like for you, right? What's a good head of sales, you know, present company excluded, of course, we don't, you know, we're gonna, you know. Oh, I, I love the, the team I get to work with and, and folks like you. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I would start it by, um, I talk about my relationships with sales leaders over the years and last count was 20, I, I call it 20 tours of duty um, uh, because with each sales leader, comes a different approach, a different style, a different understanding of, of marketing. And I, I could count on one hand where I've had a phenomenal relationship with the sales leader. And I think that those times, the things that um, worked well were they understood marketing. You know, and, and mean, so what I could do better is understand sales, but they, they knew how to partner with me to uh, ask for help in a way that was of high value. I would say if, if I 
you know, partner with the sales leader and all they care about and all they can say to me is where are my leads. That's bad. Right. That's, that's just not strategic. It's not aligned and a go to market. We're not solving the same problems together. So I can think of his name's Greg Petratus. He's at SAP now running their commercial division. And Greg and I sat down one night and we sketched out what is, what does the story look like? What's the go-to-market look like? How are we going to run this play together? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? And we got our story straight and then we got our teams aligned. And then, you know, and then we went into the trenches and, and fought hard together. Um, and, you know, I, I, like I said, I have about five of those. There's great, great sales leaders I've had the great fortune to work with. And for all of them, they knew how to get out of marketing that partnership. And so if, you know, if you're selling an account and, and, you know, you've got your SDR working and your marketing team working on your behalf, getting contacts, putting on events locally, running ads, you know, mailing, mailing stuff to them, like you're building out your team to support you. Um, and so I, depending on what level you're at, the relationship is different. If you're an individual, if you're an account executive versus, um, a, a first line sales manager versus a leader you're going to need different things out of marketing. So you have to continue to educate yourself along the way as well. And that's, I appreciated that. Sorry, it's long winded, but in Sean Murray, you know, when we were talking about pipeline and, and really trying to pull apart what was going on with our pipeline, where was it good? Where were we? We, he pulled us aside and he's like, you know what? I don't understand this part. Like explain to me what you mean by this. Like an account-based world is new and different if you haven't been selling an enterprise. Um, and so, you know, you still have to learn and ask and figure out together how to make it work. What about you? What about you trying to learn more about sales too? Like what's, you know, when did you, you know, what's an example where you were like, oh, now I understand something I didn't understand in sales a little better. So now I have that empathy or that perspective for the, for that side. Yeah. One of my favorite times in selling was, um, running the product marketing team for enterprise at Adobe. Uh, and one of the things that we did was we lined with every single region. So I, I don't know, the team was about 12 people and there were 12 geographies and each one of us spent a week in region every quarter. That was the best partnership we could have ever had with sales. I actually had a desk in the office. I picked Paris. Um, but, uh, but I would go to the, right. I would go in the region and I would spend a week. You know, and I get there on a Sunday and I'd be there Monday morning and I'd be in their standup. I was an extension of their team and I would, there, there were, I'd go on sales calls, go on ride alongs, do enablement, see what materials they're using. And I, my favorite thing to do as a, as a marketer in product marketing specifically is you spend all this time creating messaging and decks and, you know, like 20, 20, you know, 40 slide decks. You go on a sales call, they use two of the slides, two of them. That's it. You did all this work, but really, and I call them the money slides. That's where the conversation happens. And you're like, bing, okay, that's what I need to focus on. That's what we need to build our messaging around. This is what the customer said. So if you're not participating in customer interactions and watching where the light bulb goes off for the customer, you're going to spend a lot of time wasting time. And so I think that that is, you know, on the message and the resonance of customer and, and kind of working back from there is the best partnership to have with sales. Just be with them. It's so funny. We just talked about this with Steve Richards an hour ago. Like we were, we were doing a couple of these today and he said, it all comes back to the message, right, Scott? Like yeah. 
that was the exact same thing. So it's interesting to hear that from his side where we think of, we often think of Steve as a, as a sales person. Um, granted, he's now you know, running an org, so he takes marketing into it. But now to hear it from your side too, I think it's, it's a perfectly ironic that it, that that happened in the last hour. Um, I've talked about this a lot lately, I feel like, but um, it feels to me that the modern seller has, is having to become more and more of a marketer and the line is blurring a little bit. Do you think the modern marketer needs to become more and more of a salesperson? Uh, I have two ways to answer that question. Um, one is I 100% believe uh, that marketers need to stop speaking marketing because it doesn't make sense to anybody but us. Louder, louder, please. Thank you. <laughs> he needs to stop oh, speaking God. marketing. It doesn't mean anything to anybody but us, right? Unless you're marketing to marketers, stop talking marketing. Um, What's an and, example? Can you give me an ex give people an example of what that means? Like, yeah, you know, we're talking to marketing. Well, they're big, long-winded sentence with lots of words. <laughs> um, a buzzword and, and lots of jargon. Yeah, we yes. like jargon. I know we're just good at it. Uh, and, uh, you know, but lining things up. So there's action words at every beginning of the bullet, because that's how you structure a sentence, you know, it's just this shit that doesn't matter. Um, and, and I think, uh, working with sales, I, I love conversation intelligence, being able to watch conversations and actually see what the customer is saying, what sales is saying, Scott, your example of having a customer say something back to you is perfect. We love G2 crowd and the peer reviews, like. You know, just what are they saying? Huh, okay, that's actually better than what we could have said. So using customers' words, using sales words, uh, and getting out of the way um, is the best probably thing that we can do in terms of, you know, being a, a strong partner. The, the one difference on that though is, um, that's in the trenches with sales and that's around messaging. There is a different job uh, that we also have to think about and that's driving the thought leadership with the market and the analysts as the categories are forming and so definitely being very clear that sometimes there's a, a, a reason why the way we market is different than what we sell because marketing has to be a step in front we need to be driving the innovation and leading the market a lot of times with the message and then sales has to sell what's on the truck which means we have to create two versions of the same story. So, so you have to kind of, you, you got to be out in front, but then they got to sell what's, you know, we have to sell what's, what, what we're selling. Tonight. You're planting the corn and planting for the seasons and they're the ones on the back of the truck, back to your original story. Harvesting and selling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then professional services making cream corn or <laughs> cornbread. <laughs> Analogy going. How often, how often do you have, how big is your marketing team? Uh, we just took on the inbound SDRs, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, more ownership of pipeline is what I love. Uh, and so we're about 30. 30. So if you, if you, excluding the, like the people in a marketing function, product marketing, marketing role, you know, the traditional marketing, and, and it's a lot easier for you guys cause it's, it is what sales loft does. How often do you have them listening to the conversations the reps are having? Is that a, re a requirement or do you guys sit down and go, oh my God, we all need to listen to this call. It's really good um, compared to other places you've been, which I don't think you had that luxury. Uh, correct. Although um, in my last company, we sat in right next to the commercial sales team. So we got to, to hear a lot and then the SDRs were part of my team. Right. Um, so we, we were doing a lot of that and, and I love message testing and sales loft, uh, right. emails is great. Uh, uh, 
do it do it one to one before you you know send it through marketing automation if people even do that anymore. Right. Um, so um, uh, we the product marketers do it a lot, uh, and um, the but we also get pulled into sales conversations because we sell a lot to marketing, and so there's I'm probably involved in two sales engagements a week. Um, also just that I know a lot of salespeople because <laughs> I've been around a really long time, which is great because I've been able to reconnect with a lot of old friends. Uh, so I watch the recordings of the conversations before going into the next meeting. And sometimes I cringe. Right. Uh, and then, you know, give coaching back uh, after the fact. I also work out of our San Francisco office, which has eight sellers in it. And we all sit in a pit. So I hear it all day, every day. Um, some really good salespeople and the new, new ones coming in. So I get the, you know, I, I love that. And, but it's more being, um, being on the calls, uh, is, is the, the fun part really. And there's, it's funny. I was, uh, working on a deal and the sales rep didn't show up. Uh, and, uh, he told me he wasn't going to, but I had to pitch and, uh, Kyle was on at the very beginning of the call. I'm not going to say the name of the company cause the deal's not yet closed, but, um, the, uh, and, and so for 45 minutes, I've, I had to pitch and have a conversation and, and Kyle listened to the recording after and did all these snippets and sent it out. I was sorry, it made me feel really good. I'm like, I think, I think I might, I might, might have got you got, you got your publicized, man. You oh my gosh. Yeah. Crazy. First deep, first CMO ever, or at least that I can think I of. I have a 45 minute recor call recording. I, I think that would be massively powerful if you guys. Publish is the depth. Yeah. Oh, that a, maybe I should do that. That is a good idea. I like that. that. That's really, really. I was and I was pitching hard. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Have, has the whole company listened to it? Have you guys made everybody? No, no. I didn't even. I. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't feel comfortable self promoting. So um, we're gonna do it for you. Kyle yeah, exactly. <laughs> now everybody's gonna ask for it. Kyle, make sure everybody gets a copy of this one. Uh, Got to close the deal first. Once we close the deal, I'll be comfortable doing that. Fair enough. Fair I enough. Have, I have a question for you to, to change topic a little bit. It's rel it's relevant to me because this is something that I'm uh, helping somebody work on. So I just took on a client that um, rebranded recently, and I know you guys rebranded your um, conference from Rainmaker to to Rev. Can you talk about what that's what that's like rebranding something and you know pushing it forward, pushing it pushing it ahead, improving upon it, all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm curious because, you know, this is something that I'm trying to help these folks with and I want to help them get it right. Yeah. Um, and branding is not re easy to do, right? Because uh, brand, brand impression and brand sentiment is how somebody feels about you. And, and, and so, it, especially when you're changing that, it, it's, it's hard to do. So I'd start with that. Like, if somebody comes in and goes, we need to rebrand, there better be a good reason. So what, um, is, what is a good reason to rebrand? Uh, if this is negative sentiment, if you're trying to change this, what the company is known for, um, if they've evolved beyond what they are and they solve bigger problems or trying to move, you know, to change markets, um, or sometimes it just had a really bad brand to begin with, you know, like, you know, I bought it for $25. You're like, oh, no, you know. So if the brand doesn't fit the company, then that might be another reason. Well, it was my two kids' names and I merged them together. And you're like, oh, you know. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I would say on that, Scott, um, with Rainmaker specifically, cause it is a good question. And it was, you know, it was something that, um, I waited to do, uh, I, I had, 
I think the big thing about Rainmaker, and it had been going for five years, um, was a great name for where the company was when that started, right? We were talking to SDRs and you know, building a vision of, of what their livelihood could be. And so to, to have that as the, the title made sense. And it was difficult because so many people at SalesLoft identified with Rainmaker. We had Rainmaker t-shirts, people wear them all the time in the office. Um, and so I had to be super thoughtful about the approach. And so first of all, gathering input and feedback, like coming up with some options and gathering input and feedback. And we socialized it too with a lot of our, our influencers to, to see what was, um, what was doing and I, or what their feedback was. And I think the, the biggest change is that the, the sales is changing and, and this whole idea of, a, you know, the revenue experience, the revenue life cycle, the revenue team um, is starting to pick up some wind. Yep. And, and so it, it was one of the first words and I was like, oh, that's so obvious. You know, like that's, that's not creative enough. We got to get creative. And then we came back to it. And it was like, it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's just so obvious. Of course, Rev. Like, um, and, and where sales is going is the, the supporting brand. And so we, it's the, actually the name of our community first. And, and, and Scott, you know that you're, you're helping us and Richard, you're doing some stuff on there too. Thank you. Um, and so we want to build a community for the revenue professionals. And, um, and so that includes sales leaders, sales managers, and the supporting teams um, uh, for the, for, of the revenue organization. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's what we did it. So it's the, the event, the community. Uh, we have a RevStars program. You guys have both been involved in that too. Um, nominating folks to the next generation of sales leaders who are recognizing as rev stars. And all of those are part of the relationship that we want to have with the broader revenue community. That's great. That's great. The, the revenue role, you know, the CRO role is not that old, right? Chief revenue right. officer yeah. having marketing sales and customer success. And now sales ops, sales enablement is now turning into revenue ops. Right. Yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> I definitely agree that, you know, it's changing, it's picking up wind and it's, it's almost, it's, I don't think it's going to be very much longer before it's fully evolved into this new thing. And that's a good thing. It's a yeah. good thing. Yeah. It, the, any, any ways that we can break down the barriers between sales and marketing is a good thing coming together at the people process technology level, you know, um, will only benefit all of us. Yeah. Question for you. Tough question for you. Do you own a revenue number and should marketing, should the heads of marketing own a revenue number as opposed to MQL, SQL, or any other metrics? Yeah, I, my bonus is the revenue number. Every, all, as all our leaders in my last company as well. So I'm, I'm absolutely paid on, does the team hit the number? And overpaid when we do, yay. Um, uh, so um, uh, so I, I believe so. I think ownership, um, I own the pipeline number as well. And I feel, um, and, and we talked a lot about that, like who at the end of the day owns it and the ambiguity of, well, it's part sales because the outbound reps report into the sales team. And then, you know, what's marketing's contribution to pipeline is still a little bit of gray area, to be honest. Um, I think when you have, and, and, and I struggle because, and I, a lot of CMOs struggle on this, I think, because 
when it is MQLs uh, and they don't have responsibility for that actually turning into pipeline and closed one. Uh, I, I think most marketers in tech have evolved beyond that, like where we do think about what is our influence and contribution to closed one business and understanding what those conversion rates are and being able to pull back and seeing what converts and what doesn't and, and why that is. And it's not easy necessarily to track a lot of that, but it, it's possible. Um, I think uh, I feel yeah. like there's quite a bit of resistance and and I would argue that to the degree that you know you're you're comped on revenue number and things like that like you're a little bit of an early adopter and sales loft is maybe even a little bit of an early adopter I I just feel like there's so much resistance to that so much like if if I go on LinkedIn and I make some little comment on somebody's post I get attacked by marketing people I'll get attacked straight away for even suggesting that marketing should own you know, a revenue number. And, and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Shouldn't we all just be aligned? This like, we all want to be more aligned. I can't think of a better way for us to be more aligned. So why the lag? Why is it not just the norm now? Why is it not standard? I'd say two things. Um, one is where uh, you're signing up for something you don't control, right? So you may be the best or the worst, um, you know, uh, marketing team out there um, but if you don't control the rest of the process uh, that's a risk of your personal viability but the counter to that is you should own it and you should be able to have a strong enough relationship with the sales leadership in order to be able to uh, address the issue like why generate like this is where I kind of go it doesn't make sense logic sense to me if I'm gonna generate and spend a lot of money and effort and you know sweat blood and tears to generate leads that don't convert, then why am I not working as hard to figure out why they're not converting and help the sales team convert them than just continue to, to create leads that don't get worked? Like that, that doesn't just, that just doesn't make logical sense to me. Um, but uh, you know, it's stepping across the, the, the bridge to sales and you know understanding what they go through and spending time and helping educate them on the types of leads and why they're a lead and being honest with yourself it's a bad lead then don't pass more of those along and it's i think it's an evolution still it's not perfect are you still compensated at all on mqls and sqls is there like i don't have mqls you don't you, no. you, have, you have them from the state of like well here's the pipeline i have um hot leads we measure um, so those are ones that automatically go uh, to an SDR and our conversion rates are very, very high on those. So, um, and then we measure uh, account contacts that are added to target accounts. Um, and then we do attribution back to the things that we're investing in. Um, so we, we look at it so many different ways, I, but um, we, we, don't, we don't use MQLs. We use uh, accounts engaged, contacts engaged, uh, target account conversions, um, account uh, engagement across the different tiers. We're evolving because target accounts work, I think, really well in mid-market and enterprise, and it doesn't work as well in SMB, and so we're, we're evolving to a hybrid model. We probably will go back to a little bit more. We're actually doing a project right now um, on what we would name them, but I, it won't be an MQL. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like it's a more holistic approach which ties you to the whole revenue number. Cause it's not one little thing. It's not a white paper download. Right. And it's sort of the evolution way past Marketo and Eloqua and those kinds of things. So it's interesting. 
So we, we sort of spin it at the end, you know, we turn this around a little bit and ask you something, which is, you've been so gracious with your time is, how can we help you? How can uh, Scott and I, you know, support you, support Sales Law, Thread 2020, if you haven't signed up, please do. Um, but what's what's something that, that Sydney's working on that's like, well, I don't know, here's something I could ask you guys. Um. Well, I mean, we do partner with, with you and we are very grateful to that and, and the insights that you, you bring. I know, Scott, we're working on, you know, the stuff for how do we help educate and uh, evolve the, the frontline sales managers? It's really important for us as we think about our, our goals in the Rev community. Um, so continuing to do on, uh, work on that. Um, and I think just community overall, right? Like we want to be able to be helpful i think that that's all three of us right are all the the collective greater part is you know how do we continue to help sales evolve uh and understand what great selling looks like what good selling looks like and what you know why not to continue to do it the old way um so anything that you can contribute to and that we can amplify um to our audiences um you know bringing more people to learn that through whatever mediums we we produce so we're, we're trying to do a little bit more you know obviously rev is is big and we've got lots of great customers sharing their stories and i i, I know scott you're not a fan of big conferences and i totally get it there's the the balance for intimate settings as well and we want to be able to do more of that in region um so you know partnering up with us on smaller events is is would i would be very great grateful for yeah Sure. I'm, all, I'm all about smaller events. I have reasons for not liking the the big events. It's intimidating. I mean, it's yeah. not to say it's just not to it's not to say that there's no value in large events. I just think that the value is completely different, and I think a lot of people go there with the wrong expectations, and therefore end up wasting time and money and that kind of thing. If, you, if you're going there for the right reasons, then it makes a lot of a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah, the the triangulation. What I what where I'm trying to go with Rev, um, and and I was lucky enough to have it back in the days at Jive, is that it's not an event. It it's a community first, and if you spend time in the community, going to your regional meetups, getting to know your colleagues and peers, when you come to the bigger event, you still have your collective group that you're with, and you still have your place. Yep. You're just exposing yourself to new ideas, you know, networking. And, and when you have a digital forum, you start to get to know people. So in the days at Jive, when we would throw our big event, and it was a couple thousand people as well, it was a community gathering. And, and, and you knew the people that were there and you'd go say hello and you've been talking to them online. And it was that chance to get the face to face. When, when you've been in conversation. And I think a lot of us that follow you guys on, on LinkedIn too, like feel like we know you. And so, you know, you can go say hello and talk about the impact that you've made and just continue to encourage people to share. I think that, I think you guys do that too. If you go to a Dreamforce or, you know, you go to another event, you go, you know, you rent out the Salt House every year. I assume it's there again next year. And it's you- not, make, we're going somewhere bigger. Oh, good. Um, so we're at base camp. Um, but you try to bring that community in from the larger community into a smaller community. And you do bring that in. And I, I, I appreciate that effort because I think that's where 
think we all know that's where that that's where it all really happens, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. so. This has by far been the friendliest conversation I've ever had with an SC graduate, by the way. <laughs> 25, we have 25% of the Pac-12 represented right here. We do. <laughs> we do. Yeah. I will say this is the friendliest SC conversation that I've ever had. Yeah. Uh, I, when I moved to Canada, I kind of gave up on all of that. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't hold any grudges. <laughs> Which healthcare system are you on right now? So. Um, oh, Blue Cross. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> American. But I have the, I, the Canadian health insurance plan, the lifetime plan. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Sydney, I thank you so much for taking time to, to chat with us and, um, you know, giving up part of your day. I mean, literally the last day of the year. I get it. I know, you know, you're in marketing, but you're tied to sales. So I know it matters. And I know you've got your SCO coming up next week. And then you've got Rev coming up uh, in March um, in San Francisco, which is different. So it's not like you can just say, hey, somebody run to the office and grab something, right? It's a different experience. So uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, awesome to be with you guys. Thank you for everything that you do. Yes, absolutely. Please uh, come to Rev if you haven't registered yet. Um, I'll pass along something you guys can put in your promotion to get a discount for folks oh. that have been watching the podcast. Right. Cool. Um, so we can put that in the, the special offer. I don't, I don't think I have it. I'm like team. Oh, hold on. I've got it right here. Okay. They're so good. Uh, so the promo code for Rev 2020 specific to the podcast is surf VIP. S U R F. We got our own 50% off. That's fantastic. By the way, to anybody listening, we had no idea that she was going to say that. No, no. Totally that's surprised. a good Easter egg. Very, very cool. That's awesome. A good Thank you, Sydney. So, Thanks so awesome. much, Sydney. Thank you. Take care. Bye.